0: hello and welcome to impressions of america i'm simon and with me as always are toby and vaughn hi guys hi simon hi simon today i'm delighted to say that we have a special guest joining us jeff schneider is a graduate of columbia university in new york and before becoming a novelist He had a 40-year career as a physician and full professor of medicine. He also edited a medical journal, ran an intensive care unit, and lectured at national and international conferences. Jeff also worked in U.S. veterans hospitals for 22 years, serving veterans including those who fought in the Vietnam War. Jeff is the author of the Vietnam War era novel The Serpent Papers, released earlier this month which was shortlisted um, a shortlist finalist for the Blue Moon Novel Competition. And it is this novel and the Vietnam War era in general, which is the subject of today's show. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted.
0: Uh, can you give us a, a little bit more about your background and why you decided to make the move into writing novels?
1: Well, I guess by way of background, it, you've covered it pretty well. Um, I mean, I was a chief of pulmonary and critical care medicine at uh, my university. Um, I published widely, maybe 50 papers, articles, research works in medical journals before I changed my career to becoming a novelist. Um, And I became a novelist because, well, first of all, it was within me to write. I had a passion for the things I was writing about. And specifically with regard to the book, The Serpent Papers, which just came out, for my generation, the Vietnam War generation, this war is still the defining event of our lives. It created a generational rift between those who fought and supported the war on the one hand and those who protested against it on the other hand. It is the most significant event in our lifetimes in in the United States at least. Um, And I wanted to write a novel that would show that the Vietnam War could be seen from multiple angles and perspectives. It's a very complex issue. And in the United States charged with emotion, passion, rhetoric, anger, and fear. There's also a tremendous intolerance of those who held opposing viewpoints. um, And the intolerance was directed at uh, the two opposite ends of the spectrum for one another much like uh, circumstances today. Uh, The intolerance is is not surprising because as we know, Thucydides in his book, The Peloponnesian War, 440 BC, about the war between Athens and Sparta, did say history repeats itself. And it is a lesson that I guess the generations at times seem to have failed to have learned. Uh, about, and it seems the intolerance of the Vietnam era has, is repeating it, it itself in today's politics. But this novel in particular is aimed at healing the rift in my generation uh, between the two polar opposite views on the Vietnam War. Um, and I, my intention was to create a rapprochement, a peaceable dialectical coming together over the war especially embodied in one character who who really uh, straddles both ends of the spectrum of the war's views. That is he is a character who comes from a military family and was expected to go into the military. And yet he goes to Columbia university and is introduced to the anti-war aspects of uh, uh, political views of the era. So, my aim was to sort of bridge this rift in my generation with this character and with this book. Um, I, I did have a, another uh, a veteran read the book um, and he wrote the forward to the book and uh, he, he felt strongly that the book was uh, uh, was what was needed for just to solve the riddle of conscience of our era. In any case, I've been haunted by the war for 50 years because I protested against the war, but I've always felt that the boys who fought in the war were patriots. And the reason why I felt that way is complex, but I was horrified by people who protested alongside me, who insisted upon vilifying the veterans and soldiers who were coming home, many of them terribly damaged by PTSD, with physical injuries, traumatic brain syndromes. And of course, there were also the the soldiers who died in the field, 60,000 young men died in that war. So in the end, my, my feeling was to bring, bring people together over this war, instead of leaving it in a polemic, that is to say, with these two opposing viewpoints. So I dedicated the book to both people who fought the war and people who protested against it. And, and my way of contributing to the men who have fought was to serve in the VA hospitals for 22 years of my career, which I did not have to do, but which I was happy to do, and I was honored to serve them. So I guess that's the short answer to what you're asking me.
0: <laughs> so Can you give us an overview of what, what the book is about then?
1: Well, the book, um, the syn- synopsis of the book would be, uh, it's a historical novel. It's set at Columbia University amidst campus demonstrations, sit-ins, marches, protests, and riots in the 1971 to 72 period. Um, And these anti-war demonstrations were aimed at the president's escalation of the Vietnam War. uh, And that would be President Nixon at that time. Um, Although he wasn't so dissimilar from other presidents before him. And it's the story of the protagonist, JB, was raised in a violent world in the 60s, son of a rear admiral uh, from a very conservative Catholic Irish-American military family, Uh, and his destiny was expected to be in the military. However, because of unexpected sequences of events, his best friend, when his best friend volunteers to go to Vietnam and fight, he matriculates at Columbia University in New York in 1971, where he's immediately thrust into an anti-war atmosphere. And he becomes ideologically trapped between supporting intellectually his best friend who is fighting overseas in Vietnam on the one hand and the cauldron of anti-war culture and protest at Columbia on the other hand. So in this way, he embodies both ends of the political spectrum and comes to exemplify the struggles of the American generation that lived through the era and struggled to reconcile itself to the polarity that the war caused and also the challenges they faced in balancing patriotism with rejection of war, of this particular war, the Vietnam War. Now in the book, when the moral quandary and escalating war come to a head, and as the NPR reviewer Joan Baum stated in her review of the Servant Papers, with his own conscience and the conscience of his nation on his mind, ratcheting tensions and bullhorns incited students to protest and pro-war and anti-war factions collided on campus in riots. And at that time, JB, the main character is forced to make the decision that defines his life. So that is specifically the story of the book.
2: Uh, That's really really interesting. I think on on this podcast, uh, when we've dealt with this subject um, peripherally We've seen these two poles as almost like diametrically opposed. Like you take like uh, the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, you know, we see it from from their perspective or even further into the weather underground, people who created and constructed their identities uh, in defiance of the Vietnam conflict. And then there's a sort of hard hat uh, sort of more, sort of working and middle class, uh, who identified with the war, identified with the war, um, and you know, obviously sent their sons there. And those two groups, those two parts of America, never seem to bleed into each other in 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 the in the sort of research that we've done. But I can imagine on a personal level in families. Uh, on the day-to-day, there would have been so, so much, so much discord, so much even personal feelings of um, of being unsure or the, on, not really knowing, you know, what was right or, or where to go. But I would, and obviously from the synopsis you've given of the, of the main character, that's clear. And, and he reflects on this from the relationships that he has with his friend. But what about the character's own notions of like patriotism you know when the character isn't thinking about his friends or, and and that and those relationships that that bind him to a particular friend when he's reflecting on his own what he feels um what what seems to come out is it this this kind of distinct very uh, narrow distinction between you know being Against the war, or being for the war, or, or again, is it is it mixed?
1: And that is a complex question. Um, <clears throat> for him, it's mixed, and he's torn, much the way I have been torn and haunted by the Vietnam War for the past fifty years. Um, but it's because the reason why it's complex is because the backdrop of history is complex. Um, If we discuss the geopolitical stage on which the war played out, the impetus for the war was reasonable. There was a Cold War. America and Russia were vying for world power and influence. There was a space race, which was pretty benign, but there was an arms race, although the space race would perhaps um, lead to weaponization of of space, and that was uh, a fearful prospect. There was an arms race with nuclear weapons, which was harrowing. People were scared to death of this. People were building bomb shelters in America, which of course, in retrospect, we know would have been useless against atomic weapons, but they were so afraid they spent many thousands of dollars building them. Um, There were as a race and a competition between the USSR and the United States for territorial spheres of influence and trade. Um, And there were notorious cases of American spies spying for Americans who were spies, spying for the USSR on America. There was McCarthyism. There was a backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba by Kennedy in 1961 and 62, all of this aggravating tensions. And underneath it all, this tremendous fear of uh, communism, um, heightened by all these things and a doctrine which, was a strong doctrine, the domino theory, as espoused by John Forster Dulles, the Secretary of State of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was president in the 50s. And the, the theory was that if one state in one country in the Southeast Asian sphere uh, would fall, the rest would tumble like dominoes to communism and to the influence of the Soviet Union. So it was a scary time um, I was a ch- very young child when the Cold War was really in full swing, and I remember, you know, the thought of annihilation was <laughs> was a real thought. I lived in New York, and of course, New York would have been one of the first places to be targeted by the Soviet Union. There was no joke there. So the idea of fighting in Vietnam was not without its reasonableness, um, and there was also a flip side. To all of this, which was that World War II had been a righteous war. The Allies fought together to defeat monsters, basically, who wanted to take over the world and subjugate people and commit genocide and so forth. Um, But in Vietnam, we were not fighting a monster. We were not fighting those kind of monsters, anyway. And and so the, the moral underpinnings of the Vietnam War were not as certain as they had been in World War II. And uh, Americans were not used to that. They just had just lived through this war which was very important to win, World War II. And America had never lost a war. So it was, it was a self-righteousness about Americans which spilled into their ideas about Vietnam. Um, but what happened was by the early 1970s, the United States was losing the war basically. And we were spending a ton of money on the war. And 60,000 boys eventually died. And President Nixon wanted to have peace and promised peace. Now, LBJ had promised not to bomb North Vietnam. And yet, uh, while he was promising that during the 1964 elections, he actually was making plans to bomb North Vietnam. So there was hypocrisy there. Uh, He subscribed to the domino theory, Kennedy before him. And Nixon came in. Uh, He also subscribed to the domino theory, but he did promise peace. But while he was promising peace, he started to escalate the war. And he did it to have peace with honor and to twist the arms of the North Vietnamese to get them to come to the bargaining table and cave in to American demands. So in order to achieve peace, he wanted to escalate the war, which involved drafting more boys, and would involve more boys dying. There's some hypocrisy. There's a bit of a paradox there. You know, we're going to have peace. We're striving for peace, but we're going to kill more boys in the meantime to get it. That was one problem. The other problem was he was widening the war into non-combatant nations, Laos and Cambodia. And that was not, that was not being done before. It may have been done covertly, but it wasn't done in the open the way it was at the time. Uh, that in 1972 when Nixon uh, escalated the war. And also bombing of North Vietnam was re So he escalated the war in these three ways and he took away student deferments. That is to say, there had been a draft lottery um, to draft boys, each birth date, each day of the year was assigned a, a number from one to three, six, 365. And if your number was low, if for example, you were born on November 15th and your number was one, you would be drafted and you would probably go to Vietnam and fight. If your number was 365, you weren't going to be drafted and you wouldn't have to go. Now, students had been uniformly uh, um, uh, exempt from that lottery uh, prior to Richard Nixon. He, he took away student deferments from that lottery and so the students were now subjected to the lottery. That seemed on the surface to be fair, but what it did was increase the pool of boys who could be shipped overseas to fight, so there were more boys being drafted. It was just part of an overall scheme to um, increase the number of boys and increase the number in the draft. So it was a complex time, and the war was changing. By the time 1971-72 rolled around and, and President Nixon was making what seemed to be hypocritical statements, not unlike his predecessors, I should say. Um, then, uh, you know, students across the country were starting to become unrestful and there were uprisings. Uh, there was Kent State in 1970, where four students who were actually peaceably gathering, four students were shot to death uh, when the national U.S. National Guard fired into a crowd in Ohio at Kent State University. And in 1971, Seventy-two, Colombia had an uprising. So that's, it, it's a complex field on which all this happening. And of course, my main character, JB, was torn in the way I was, that the boys going off to war were actually protecting our country and had gone to protect us in a cold war that we were waging with the Soviet Union and in, with the perceptions I mentioned in terms of that struggle with the Soviet Union. So you couldn't fault them, Um, you know, you couldn't vilify them. In fact, they were patriots. They were going for what they believed was correct and they thought this was correct for America. But what was happening the mindset of Americans was changing because of the nature of the war and that we were losing and that we started to realize that perhaps North Vietnam should have their own self-determination and things of that nature. So it was complex. So uh, my main character deals with all those those prospects and problems and issues, and in the end, he makes a decision that defines his life when he's confronted with a riot in front of Hamilton Hall on the campus of Columbia University. I, I hope that answers the question you were asking.
2: No, no, it, it does. It, it sets good good context, in it and yeah, and it gets sense of the character itself. So, so could you um, could you explain perhaps before the riot what? Your main character's engagement is with the anti war protests at Columbia and, and, and that, you know, in that context, because these were very, very, I would say, um, closed systems almost, you know, like they were producing literature, uh, there's white left wing. Um, in some ways quite libertarian but was very very much against the war like you've gone into his relationship with the wider world and what he knows about the Soviet Union and his relationship with his his friend but what is his engagement with the anti war uh, protests and people at the university before he makes this um, sort of life-changing decision.
1: But what happens to him is that he, he has a girlfriend who is a little older than him on campus. And she had been involved with the Weathermen and SDS uh, before and she schools him in the politics, uh, in anti-war politics of Vietnam uh, and of the more liberal concepts of the day. And that's basically what happens to him. Um, you know, the book also has a murder in it. There are complications involving other characters, uh, drugs, um, sex. Uh, you know, college, uh, new new things that were happening in the seventies in terms of a sexual revolution, a women's revolution, uh, music of the seventies. Woodstock had just happened. So there's a lot of other things going on, but with regard to just the war, he was not handing out pamphlets during his incubation towards attending this riot in front of Hamilton Hall. His girlfriend um, familiarizes him with the issues. They have discussions about it. Uh, There are altercations about it on campus. He attends some meetings and in the end, uh, finally makes a decision in front of Hamilton Hall, where he's gonna go and what the meaning of that decision was. Um, But on the the campus itself, of course, had a major uprising throughout that spring, which involved the taking over of buildings. Um, And people would, we might call them on the left or liberal people against the war were taking over buildings and then they were kicked out by some more right leaning people and then they retook buildings and then we had the police on campus ejecting students from buildings. Uh, There were marches uh, throughout Manhattan. There was one march factually that involved 50,000 people that uh, marched from uptown, downtown to Times Square and to uh, further south than that near Penn Station in Madison Square Garden. So there were a lot of events occurring during that time period. But he was mostly on the fence uh, for most of these things, but was exposing himself to the issues of the day until he finally did, he was forced to make a decision by virtue of the fact that he was in the right place at the right time to, make, to be forced to make that decision. So no, he, it, the story is not a story about uh, someone who's radical, who then participates in a rally. It's somebody who really does have questions about the war Uh, And amidst all of this, just before it all comes to a head, his friend who had volunteered for Vietnam comes back to New York on furlough and sort of other other all kinds of hell break loose as a result of him coming back from Vietnam and the damage that has been done to him psychologically um, is is manifested in his return to, to the United States and to visit his friend both of them having been from Virginia, but visiting his friend in New York. So it's a it's a novel. It's uh, it's not a nonfiction. So what happens is there are there are novel plots and subplots. I hope that, uh, that, yeah, that answers was, your
0: question. That was great. I was just, before we go any further, I was just wondering from your own perspective, how much was there kind of a personal catharsis for you to be kind of writing this and going through it? And you've obviously talked a lot about from your own perspective, what the Vietnam War meant and obviously your own, your own uh, professional history and your own personal history. Um, what was it actually like writing the the book and actually kind of experiencing it again through this, this character who is obviously somewhat based on yourself or some version of, of experiences? Um, I was wondering if you can maybe tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, the thing about living through historical events and even participating in some little way um the thing about that is that the the person who experiences it feels that they've been through something which is important and special. Something happened and you were there. Um, For me, I was haunted for 50 years by what I saw simply because of the sentiments there. Of course, I was always electrified by what had happened. And I was passionate about feeling that the veterans were not to be vilified and were patriots. And I was passionate about the fact that the war was was wrong. So there were a lot of things that um, sort of haunted me, bothered me, carried forward in my life. But when I wrote the book, I felt it was my roadmap to sort of um, redemption, if you will. Uh, It allowed me to feel a resolution to these conflicts within me. And I I see that the book, uh, I wanted the book to be a roadmap for people of my generation who felt the same way I do or did uh, so that they could achieve the same, shall we say, resolution to their own feelings, conflicting feelings about the war. Now, I have a social, I have social media sites and I have one, I I posted something and it's had like 4,500 hits. I mean, it's just crazy. It's been shared like 700 times and people are fighting. (laughs) They're they're saying, you know, it's on Facebook. They're saying things about each other. They're they're angry at each other. (laughs) But there are other people who are much more philosophical, who want to read the book because they feel that it might be a chance for them to to get a, a real handle on what happened. It's very hard to see something outside of it when you are in the middle of it. Um, To get that perspective, you really have to—you really need to be represented it and stand outside and watch it unfold, which is something my generation did not have a chance to do. They were with—they were thrust into it, so the ability to look at it from the outside more objectively or in a more whole way uh, was denied them. Uh, You know, that's something for history. Well, here's something that's—that's here's a historical novel, and people can read it and and feel some resolution with it. At least that's my hope for it. What I found is that those in my generation who have read it um, have sent me emails and have told you know have have contacted me in other ways, and have told me that um, they really felt that this this settled it for them. They they thought it was great and they they felt a release. So uh, in a small way, I feel um, I feel like I've 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 achieved that, and I I feel good about it. So that's that's why that's how I feel about it now. Yes.
0: So we're you know fifty years on uh, from the, the from Vietnam War essentially to so the sort of final years of it. Um, the the book itself kind of coming out now and obviously kind of um, kind of been a um, point towards sort of a later part of your career. I was just wondering as far as the timing of it and it being released today and the environment in which we're kind of currently living through. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about, from your own perspective, about writing a book about Vietnam now, while, as you mentioned earlier, there is such division in America, and we're also living through historical times, um, and we're also living through a time, I mean, only, only now very recently, obviously, after you've written the book. Russia is now, I suppose, is maybe a little bit closer to where Russia was during the Vietnam War than maybe it was or it seemed to be, say, in the 90s, for instance. Uh, so I was wondering if you could maybe try and tell us a little bit about your own experience of writing and releasing a book now, which is set in this very historical period, and it's now released during this very historical period.
1: Well, it is the 50th anniversary of the Columbia University uprisings, about which I've written So in one way, it's timely in that sense, but that doesn't answer your question entirely. Um, Obviously, I did not know that uh, Russia would invade Ukraine. Um, I wasn't that prescient and I didn't have insider knowledge, Um, (laughs) but um, it, it, it is a recrudescence, is it not, of the Cold War, which was the backdrop for the entire Vietnam period. So in a lot of ways, it's it's an echo mm-hmm. of what had happened well, what has happened 50 years ago. Um, and and it seems to me that Putin uh, did not uh, did not read my book, you know, and he does not, <laughs> you know, he, he's we'll send not him a copy. He's not getting that <laughs> message.
0: <laughs> it,
2: it, won't, it won't get to him because his his um, assistants never send him any right information. So. No,
1: that, that, that's a real shame. Yeah. We can only hope yeah. it does. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, but there are other things too in society. There's, um, you know, aside from the Cold War backdrop and the fear, of course, my generation has been through this. I almost feel like at least now we have a history that America, the West, including England, France, and other nuclear powers uh, versus Russia now, um, at least we know that there was a history in which the same tension, these same tensions occurred, but there is a history of no nuclear uh disasters occurring as a result. Um, so we do still have that threat, but it seems to be reduced from the original Cold War back in the 1945 to 1975 range or 1980 range. Um so Yes, this this era does echo those times. It is scary. There's a lot echoing. I mean, you know, uh, Putin has uh, said that there are ethnic Russians. He wants to go in there and reclaim, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that's what Hitler said about the Sudetenland. Um, He said he's going to go into Sudetenland. He's not going to go anywhere else because those are really ethnic Germans and they need to be protected. Blah, blah, blah. But he didn't stop there. Um, on the other hand, he sort of waltz through things. Um, Putin is having a tough time of it. He's not waltzing through. But that, I'm not an expert on, on this current conflagration, but I do take your point. Um, and on top of that, there is an intolerance that you can see in America. And I don't know if it exists in the UK. I'm not there. You would have to tell me. But in the United States, there's a terrible intolerance and a polarity between political parties, between the views of America, between how we should handle vaccines and COVID. Um, There seem to be two, two, wherever you look, there are two sides to the story and people are totally intolerant of one another. Uh, There's no coming together over this. The government hasn't come out and educated people across the board. Uh, Government has said before, Uh, the recent elections and after the recent elections that they want to heal the nation, but none, nobody really is. And nobody's really trying to, everyone's appealing to their own constituency. Uh, So the divisions remain and government has not been helpful in healing the nation. In fact, if you follow uh, what's happening, uh, there have been a lot of, you know, uh, people have been forced to take vaccines or they're going to lose their job. Um, and, and they're gonna lose benefits and other things. Now, in the United States, um, it's very un-American to force people to do things. Uh, the draft is one such thing. And as my book points out, it was a very sore, it was a, it was a sore point that, uh, that boys were forced to go to war. Uh, they were putting their bodies on the line for the government and were forced to do it. That's why there was such an upheaval over it. I mean, the vaccine is a very similar thing. It's not as serious as being drafted, I can tell you, but uh, there is some civil liberties attached to not having the government tell you what you're gonna do with your body. So to be punished to have a vaccine seems to me uh, to be very un-American. On the other hand, I'm a physician, I'm a lung doctor, and I'm a critical care physician. And I think that this vaccine is probably one of the greatest medical achievements in the history of humankind. I think this vaccine, it's new, a new kind of vaccine. It's been developed with a knowledge of RNA viruses that only the HIV virus and all the research we did for so many years, 30 years with that virus, only that research could have gotten us to the point where we could develop an RNA uh, of vaccine against COVID. Uh, and it's remarkable that we did it so fast. We did it within a year. And that there were so few side effects that we can see, at least to this point, it seems to be very safe. And I've been vaccine, vaccinated three times, and I've told everyone I know to be vac- vaccinated. And my mission is to, to educate people about it. But that's different than telling people, "Look, if you don't have the vaccine, we're gonna you're gonna lose your job, or we're gonna force you to do it." And that's 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 taking it a step too far. So and there's intolerance over this issue. So there, there are other issues beside even Ukraine uh, and Russia that tie into the same mindset of intolerance that surrounded the Vietnam War era.
2: I just want to dive back into your characters uh, here. This is on the other side, on sort of the, the patriotic, sort of more, more right-wing side <clears throat> of the, the ledger with the friend that goes off to to Vietnam. There is a kind of characterization of those people um, from that side uh, you know as patriots as you as you said, uh, men who you know did what they could in that situation and uh, honored by some but not necessarily honored by others. But there is also like the, the Dale Hunter, um, the, the film by Michael Cimino, uh, characterization of um, them as you know suffering, and um completely um, sympathetic characters and of the Vietnamese themselves as like alien, horrible and and malicious. So does your Vietnam veteran character deal with um, this kind of view of of him as a patriot or not necessarily the patriot and is he particularly haunted by Vietnam in the same way as, um, you know, pe- people who came back and developed a kind of hatred of the of the Vietnamese and uh, wanted to not only honor the result of uh, the war and what they did, but also to try to take that into the future and say that the, their cause was, was just and, and right and, and patriotic.
1: Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, they might have been right of center back in the Vietnam era. People who espoused the war, but we didn't consider them to be right wingers. I mean, they 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 weren't fascisti, they weren't fascists. Uh, they were they were right of center to be sure. But in those days, we didn't call people right wingers too quickly or left wingers. Although the the people uh, who were protesting the war called themselves left wingers, and that sort of changed that that part of the playing field. As far as my character goes. Um, First of all, I did take care of a lot of veterans and they are so, so many of them are so damaged. It's, it's terrible to see. And it's, it's sad. Um, You know, veterans who sleep in doorways on the, on the sidewalks have no place to go are not mentally uh, healthy enough to get a job who fall into a rut of, of becoming so unkempt and so outside of society that they can't, they, they don't have the wherewithal to find a place to get a bath. They don't have the money to get uh, clothes so that they go to a job interview and look like a suitable candidate. They're so far away from that uh, and so damaged. So it is terrible what the Vietnam War has done to those who fought in it. And, you know, it's the same thing for the Afghanistan conflict. And I know the United Kingdom had some severe problems with PTSD and its uh, its veterans who came home from Afghanistan. And I should also say that the precipitous um, withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan uh, sort of eerily echoes again the Vietnam War and the way we sort of pulled out suddenly there and the whole thing collapsed. Not quite as fast as in Afghanistan, but uh, fairly rapidly. So there are parallels there. But yes, in my book, my character, the best friend of JB, the protagonist, his name is Gilly, goes off to Vietnam, thinking he's going to protect his country. Um, He goes off a good Catholic boy, believes in God, and he comes back destroyed. I don't want to give too much of a book away, but, um, you know, I will say this. uh, I don't think that I really don't think that uh, and there are many American veterans, by the way, who protested against the Vietnam War after they came home from it. Um, But I don't think in general, even if Americans were in favor of that war, that they hated the Vietnamese. I mean, there were times in the beginning when we felt that they were aligned with the Soviet Union and we sort of had a hate because of our fear of the Soviet Union. But that dissipated and we began to see the Vietnamese in a different light. I didn't feel that as much that there was as much hatred of the Vietnamese really at all. Uh, it seemed to be a different problem that was going on, um, that we were fighting against communism, but the, the character Gillian, in my book is incredibly damaged. He comes back and, um, you know, it's hard. Uh, I'll, I'll give something away about the book. He does say, you know, when I'm, someone said, maybe it's JB who says it of his friend, he says, in order to fight the Vietnamese and kill somebody else in a war, which is so against his faith and against his best friend's faith, in order to do those things, you can't, you can't do them in a friendly way. If you're going to survive in war, you have to hate the enemy. I mean, you're afraid of them, they will kill you and you have to kill them. And in order to kill somebody, you have to hate them. So it's really, not the time, it's really not the time or place to tell someone who's going to fight, hey, these folks are not so bad. Um, you know, they could be like you and me. Uh, you know, if you're gonna survive in a war and you're stuck in front lines and you're gonna be shot at and you're gonna shoot back, uh, hatred has to be there. And, it and, and that's a destructive process. So when these men came back from the war, uh, having killed people and they have blood on their hands, uh, they are very damaged by that, extremely damaged by that. And the things they have seen and done are ungodly and they feel their spirits are soiled. And that's a powerful problem to have. And it's in the book. Yes. So I, I don't want to give away too much because there are some, some very violent things that happen in that book, um, you know, but they're, they're not gratuitous violence. They're violence. That it, it, it's there for a reason. So, uh, let me just, if I may, stop there. <laughs> I'm hoping I've answered some of what you wanted to know. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Um, so you you were just talking there about the, the condition in which um, American soldiers were coming back from Vietnam and the, the ordeals that they were going through, both not in the war and also upon their return and the, the trauma they were dealing with as Obviously, you've got first-hand experience as you as you've talked about about the soldiers upon their return. Um, it'd be very fair to say that they weren't uh, greeted with much respect and honor by a, a large proportion of the American public upon their return. I was just wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about, from your own perspective, what you sort of think about the um perception that American soldiers, at least many American soldiers, received upon their return and maybe what it kind of signaled about um, where America was at that time in how they treated their so- the soldiers that came back.
1: Yeah, I think it's very sad. I mean, I felt it then and I feel it now, as I say, that those were men who went off for good and altruistic reasons, got in deeper than they knew they were gonna get in, into, suffered terribly and were injured horribly and they should be treated as patriots. That's how I felt, and I was, I was devastated. I was horrified by the fact that they were vilified. To me, there was no place for that. Um, you know, and, and part of it has to do with the fact that people sometimes who become politically very zealous, even if they're right, they seem to forget that there is a human condition that's involved here and that there are human tragedies um, you can disagree about the politics of something, but to, but one should always be mindful of the human condition, no matter what side, uh, your adversary is on. I mean, you know, politically, I mean, it shouldn't, you shouldn't want to destroy those people. They are Americans. They fought for the country. They may have done it, uh, for the wrong reasons or for the right reasons. It's hard to say. The issue is complex as we discussed in the cold war backdrop was very serious, um, but one should always be mindful of that. So it really did, it bothered me deeply that some veterans were spat upon. And I I don't think the majority of people treated them that way, but it doesn't take many um, to spoil a parade. Um, And so if if veterans were marching in a parade, it didn't take many protesters to to be negative, to make their points and to to hurt those, those people who had suffered so much in the field. So... That's that's how I feel about it, um, and I, again, it's part of the polemic, the rift in my generation, if you will, that I want to have healed. I I want to have a a human side to the story, and a novel is a good way to approach that because you can follow certain characters and see what their trajectory is and follow their personal stories much more easily than uh, than you might be able to with some nonfictional accounts where it's more difficult.
0: You had a difficult time at all squaring up your own experiences of working with veterans who have you know gone through terrible things and who have had um, you know difficult experiences coming back. and then sort of squaring that up against the actual war itself and the devastation it did to Vietnam and um, other you know lives and, and uh, the people there who've suffered so much and who were, themselves gone through um sort of terrible acts committed by american soldiers or american soldiers on, on behalf of um an american policy which was you know you know killing children or, or you know firebombing the v- women in villages and that kind of stuff has, has that at all been a, a sort of difficult thing for you to square between your obvi- obvious kind of sympathy and regard for these soldiers but also at the same time the the horrors that went over uh, that took place over there and the, the, the Vietnam and other people who, who suffered such horrors.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, all, all of these fe- feelings don't have to make sense, you know? And so I, mm-hmm. I, I felt, I felt for the veteran, I felt for the soldiers, but you know, in any group of young men, there are going to be some homicidal maniacs anyway. And if they end up in Vietnam, they're going to do terrible things, especially if you give them power. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, the top reasons why young men in the age bracket of soldiers say in the 18 to 25 year old range, one of the top reasons that they die is because it's through homicide is through violence. Um, so yeah, if you put a bunch of soldiers in that age range there, um, you don't know who the homicidal maniacs are yet until they start killing people, uh, gratuitously. Now there was me lie. It was a terrible slaughter of an entire village. I mean, that sickens me um, when I think of the Vietnamese people, um, you know, and this comes out in the book, you know, I think the point is made that what difference does it make if you kill, if you murdered someone on the streets of New York or you murder them, they're a murderer. These people are, you know, they're given the electric chair. You're sending people over to Vietnam and you're killing Vietnamese and some of these people are innocent and they you know, that's murder too. Um, just because it's 12,000 miles away and you can't see it and it's a different race of people, it doesn't matter. And to be honest, the soldiers feel that. They, they know, a lot of them know that they've killed people and it's wrong, um, especially when it's up close and personal. I suppose shooting a rifle from 400 yards, you really don't see the damage you've done. It may not be that personal, but uh, some of warfare becomes very personal and the men are very damaged and they know they've done terrible things and that is dealt with in the book so yes um i was horrified by the toll that vietnamese took um uh you know everything from the immolation of monks in the streets of saigon to the murder of women and children in villages as you mentioned it's been put on film uh you know and but and also the you know the death of soldiers, Vietnamese soldiers and American soldiers. Vietnamese are a country that has been overrun and subjugated for a thousand years and divvied up mostly the Chinese but by many different groups in Southeast Asia. So they haven't had self-determination for a very long time and uh, they were finally fighting for it. I do sympathize with that. So yeah, I'm horrified by the violence. I'm horrified, which is, I, and I put it in the book to make it as 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 horrifying as possible, not as in as um, uh, visually uh, titillating violent, but as as horrifying violence in terms of the, the moral principles involved and and the the the, the consequences of death and violence, uh, not just the blood that's spilt on the sidewalk and intestines and stuff like that. You know, the the horror of violence is. is 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 deeper than just the physical part of it. So yes, I, I do feel I did feel for the Vietnamese people. I feel for the Afghanistan, the Afghanis who have been subjected to war. I feel terrible for you the Ukrainians who are being subjected to war and whose, you know, we have hospitals being bombed and and civilians being they say they're being targeted, but in any case that they are suffering. I, I I'm horrified by that. But um, you know, it is, it is part of warfare, and one has to consider it when one is discussing war. It's part of the, it's part of the landscape. Uh, oh. I think war is evil. I think war is an evil thing. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, before we move back to your book, um, I was just wondering, from your own perspective, as someone who's lived through this last 50 years, um, you mentioned at the start about how, for your generation... Um, the Vietnam War was a defining or the defining um, sort of uh, time period or or set of events. I I was wondering, what have you thought about um, the media representation of both the Vietnam War and the events that have followed and people say such as Oliver Stone, who also appears to have taken this very much to to heart as on both the personal and a um, artistic level about what he wanted to, the stories he wanted to tell and and how he was going to go about telling them. I was just wondering if you had any kind of insights for, from your own perspective of watching other people of, of your generation sort of represent this, either on film or on television or, or novels or anything like that.
1: Well, Vietnam, the Vietnam War is renowned for the fact that uh, reporters were in the, in the brush, in the jungle, with, with soldiers in Vietnam and were filming them and we're we're right there now. I think it may have happened for the first time in World War II. There were, in fact, they're airing those films these days. But they didn't show mm-hmm. the public back then. There were films of reporters in World War II and, and journalists who were filming it, uh, but they didn't show the films to the public. But in Vietnam, they did. And they, they, they I mean, you could watch eighteen-year-olds be murdered on film um, in war uh, at six o'clock on your home television. Uh, this had never happened before. So what does it mean? It it means that the media stepped in and presented to people what war looked like. And it was doing it pretty much for the first time as it happened. It had a tremendous impact. Um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways it was an honest thing to do. um, And I think that, uh, you know, as that happened, uh, I think Americans were shocked at what they were seeing. And it probably was part of how, uh, why people sort of turned against that war because they saw how terrible war was. So many of us had not experienced war and were watching it and watching boys being killed and they're they're shooting at other boys. And, you know, it's the whole whole experience was horrifying. Um, So the media had a tremendous impact and, uh, and on the war, and it's, the media has power. Um, and I think, currently, I think the media is a problem because I think uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's become unreliable. I myself don't know who to trust when I, when I see a media report. It's very difficult to figure out what's happening and who do you trust. There, I've been following the COVID story, something I know about and something I'm relatively expert in, medicine, And I see how many false reports are being generated across the internet, false reports on the news. I see the National Institutes of Health in the United States and the the Centers for Disease Control in the United States uh, at loggerheads and contradicting one another. Um, I think that um, there's a problem. (laughs) I think there's a problem in in the media serving up honest accounts and uh, you know, it's difficult because America has uh, has a freedom of speech ethic uh, that's deeply ingrained in us. But I don't think those the framers of the Constitution of the United States realized how that could run amok on an internet in which, uh, through which, every average person on the street can have instant information, um, and it's uh, it's it's a problem. I I think that the reliability of media today is has become a problem, maybe not in some in some media outlets, but and maybe not all the time. But it's very hard for an average person to decide which outlets are are right and which aren't and which reports are right, and which aren't. And we all suffer from that. So I think it's um, and those who are, are only believing in one set of reports religiously, I think they're making a big mistake. So it's 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 a problem. I think
2: so. maybe maybe freedom of speech is the problem. Yeah, we probably should get rid of it or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, uh, but I think yeah you you know in the in the issues that you brought up with the media uh, and the media not being with being unreliable and being split and Vietnam being a radicalizing point for for the for the media. I think in this novel you've tried with with you know fictional characters to form. Some sort of like one America You know where the, where the people aren't They aren't placed in Little boxes and they aren't split up by different media Corporations and identities Like the left and, and The right and uh, things like That but going back To the 1960s Do, do you Really feel like the world That these characters uh, Lived in do, do you really Feel that that the, the kind of Radicalization Could have been stopped by Something like you know you, you, You're you creating personal characters Who in themselves Are like other people and are just human Beings but there's The, the tides of history Meant that Not only on the issue of Vietnam but on On issues of um, You know Personal authenticity And sex and drugs and and um, and civil rights there were issues that were going to really t- you know break up the kind of consensus of the of the 19 1950s and there, there is an attempt by yourself and perhaps other people to try to create a one America and a, a, a sort of more settled more understanding culture but a lot of the reason why that broke apart was because the 1950s and the and the era before that was kind of um, crashing for a lot of of descent away from the one America that existed at the time so um, you know like y- you um, and and other people and probably myself get a little bit sad about the loss of this kind of one America but was it a yeah, you know, Was that necessarily a bad thing? Uh,
1: you know, I don't think I've coined the term one America. I only wanted to heal a rift in my generation about the, about the Vietnam War. Really, that was my aim. Um, I, about one America, I mean, you know, there, there are many Americas. Um, and I think that's what maybe that's what you're alluding to. Um, there are many diverse points of view. there are many ethnicities there are many different languages. there are people who there are many americas um America has always been felt itself to be strong because of its diversity but i i it it really has fallen short um in... but but
2: that diversity creates tension
1: yeah but that's that's okay. Um, you know, as long as it doesn't... Because here we're country.
2: dealing with a, a, a rift, a rift, and the and the rift is the it's The, well, the rift
1: is, is those people who... It's an intolerance. The rift is caused by intolerance. Mm-hmm. So the rift was between people who were for the war were intolerant of people who opposed the war, saying they're un-American and unpatriotic. People who were against the war at least during that time period, that narrow time period when we were losing the war, we had realized that the war really, the reasons for bringing the war to a head were not really called for. Those against the war really were intolerant of those for the war, or those even fighting in the war, who were sort of not making any decisions about the war at all. They were just there fighting it. Some of them were drafted. I mean, you know, they were putting their lives on the line, but some of them were doing it uh, because they were forced to do it. So, These intolerances uh, are what I don't like. Um, I don't like intolerance. Um, I think that people should hear each other out. Uh, I don't think that any one group of people has the moral high ground or should be allowed to say they have the moral. Everyone should be heard because people have their points of view. And to the extent that we can accommodate those points of view, we should try to amalgamate them. If If it's not possible because some of those points of view themselves are intolerant, then there's nothing we can do about that, but we should make an attempt. Um, and I, as far as one America goes, um, that's not really something I mentioned one way or the other. It's really a subject that's a lot different than what I'm aiming for. So for me to talk about that, I think is um, would maybe perhaps be me overstepping what I'm trying to say. And uh, it's, not, it's not a point I was trying to make one way
0: or the other. So we're coming up to the hour mark now, Jeff, is there anything um, additionally that we haven't touched upon in the book that you'd like to um, like to talk about before we, uh, before we close up here today?
1: No, I think uh, you've covered more than I imagined we would. I, I thought the questions <laughs> were fabulous. Um, and, you know, um, I was so glad to have the opportunity. I, I just hope at some point we can, uh, I'd like to mention my website.
0: Oh, yes, p- please, please. P- if there's anything additional you'd like to, to promote to your t- tell our audience about, please go for it.
1: Yes, the, my website where you can read about what the book is about, see book reviews or snippets of book reviews and so forth. Uh, and tie into places you can buy the book is www.jschnaderauthor.com. That's J-S-C-H-N-A-D-E-R, author dot com, and the book can be purchased anywhere books are sold. Um, I hear that hardcovers are currently hard to find. You might have to go to the publisher, the Permanent Press. They have a website to get to get a hardcover uh, copy of the book, or you can go to my website, as I said, and through there um, find a link to the publisher and to other places you can buy the book.
0: Fantastic well uh thank you so much for joining us today jeff it's been a really enjoyable chat and uh yeah best of luck with the book well thank you so much thanks for having me fantastic uh from jeff from toby from vaughn and myself simon thank you very much for listening and we'll have another episode for you in the new future goodbye bye
1: bye